all my life I've been waiting for, I've been praying for, for the people to say that we don't want war no more. There will be no more war. There will be no more violence. And our children will play one day, sings Medellisha. We here at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Dr. Levy, are also praying that one day people will say that we don't want to fight no more and that there will be no more war. For Solutions to Violence, I'm Jim Johnson. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5 FM, and you're listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. I'm Jamie McMillan with co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending an email to solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Today's Solutions to Violence guest is physician and epidemiologist, Dr. Barry Levy. Welcome, Dr. Levy. Great to be with you and your listeners. Barry Levy is a physician and epidemiologist who studied the health impacts of war for more than three decades. His new book, From Horrors to Hope, Recognizing and Preventing Health Impacts of War, which was published by Oxford University Press, provides a comprehensive review of the impacts of armed conflict on health, human rights, and the environment and addresses the prevention of war and the promotion of peace. Dr. Levy has spoken and written extensively on these issues, including the health impacts of Russia's war in Ukraine. Dr. Levy has authored or co-authored more than 250 published articles and book chapters, and Dr. Levy previously served as medical epidemiologist with the Centers for Disease Control. He is an adjunct professor of public health at Tufts University of Medicine and past president of the American Public Health Association. Dr. Levy, it's always interesting to know how our guests have gotten involved with the issues that are important to them in their life at this point. As a physician and epidemiologist, how did you get interested in the health impacts of war? Well, again, it's great to be with both of you and your listeners. In the in 1980, I actually went over and worked in a Cambodian refugee camp in Thailand. And up to then, uh, a lot of my experience in, in medicine has been in, had been internal medicine and in public health. And I had an opportunity to go over and uh, work in this refugee camp of over 100,000 Cambodian refugees just over the border in Thailand. I was working with a group from Cornell Medical School where I had gone to medical school and the International Rescue Committee. And that was really a life-changing experience for me. These, the people in the camp, more than 100,000, were survivors of the uh, Cambodian genocide that had taken place from 1976 to 1979, when the, the Khmer Rouge, headed by Pol Pot, forced everybody out into the countryside uh, into slave labor. And over that three-and-a-half-year period, uh, many people died, many people were summarily executed. And in early 1979, Vietnam, the Vietnamese army actually invaded the country and freed the survivors of, of that genocide. And so there were approximately 7 million Cambodians uh, in Cambodia before this uh, regime took power. And uh, something in the range of a million to a million and a half of them died during that three plus year period. And when the Vietnamese army came in and overthrew the government, uh, many people tried to return back to their homes, which may or may not have been there, but many people uh, chose to escape the country entirely and many of those people came to this refugee camp, Thailand, where I worked along with other doctors and nurses and some medical students and nursing students to serve the medical and some of the public health needs uh, of the people in the camp. So that, that was really a life-changing ex experience for me. And though you could say it wasn't directly a war, it was certainly a, uh, a genocide that many of these people had survived. And, and even to get into Thailand, they had to get through uh, fighting that was going on in the border and so forth. So that was one experience I had in 1980. And actually, out of that experience, I came back to the United States and gave probably over 100 presentations to community groups, faith-based organizations, uh, schools, even to a daycare center once, talking about my experience in the, in the refugee camp and really talking about the resilience of these people who had survived the, these 
horrendous uh, times. You know, many of them have lost family members. Sometimes their whole communities were wiped out. Uh, many of them had, had endured you know, little food, no medical care, hardly any water for three or more years, hard labor. And the fact that they survived, and, and indeed many of them were even optimistic about the future, uh, was, was a very moving experience for me. The other thing that happened is in 1991, a group of my colleagues at the American Public Health Association were concerned about the following. There had been a, a very popular war, if any war, war could be popular in that sense, but it, and that was the Gulf War, uh, the Persian Gulf War in 1991. What had happened was that Iraq, as you may recall, had invaded Kuwait in defiance of the international community, breaking international laws, and the United States and I think 40 you know, allied countries worked together militarily to force the, the, the Iraqi army out of Kuwait and, and back to Iraq. And it, it was a very popular war because it, it seemed like the United States was doing the right thing, and indeed we were, to free Kuwait from the Iraqi troops. But in the process, many people were killed, not only many military personnel, but many civilians. And indeed, a lot of the military personnel were, you know, young people who were forced into the military, you know, going out and fighting a war wasn't, wasn't their idea of what they would otherwise choose to do. And so, so what, what uh, a number of my colleagues in public health and I did is we put together a seminar at a, a professional conference at the annual meeting of the American Public Health Association on the adverse effects of war. So we use this really as an opportunity to shed light not only on you know, why this war was fought in the first place, for, for arguably for good reason, but also the, the adverse health effects, not only on the military, but also, also civilians. And this also led, you know, like my experience back after the Cambodian refugee camp, this also led to a number of presentations and actually a book that my colleague, Dr. Victor Seidel and I put together with about 30 contributing authors that we called War and Public Health, and it was eventually published uh, in the mid-90s, and then later we published a, a second edition of the book. So it was the experience in the Cambodian refugee camp, coupled with the activities that I was engaged with uh, with colleagues after the Gulf War, that uh, sort of put me on a path, a path of my choosing to get more involved in studying the adverse effects of war. So thanks to mainline media, uh, Dr. Levy, we have seen up close over the past six months, Russia's war with Ukraine. Is this war typical of wars that have recently occurred? Well, you know, in, in some ways this war is typical and in a number of ways it's not typical. So what's not typical about it is that most wars in recent years, if you go back 10 or 20 years, the vast majority of wars are fighting within countries. Most of these really are civil wars. And many of these are in distant, low and middle income countries, poor countries. And the, most of these wars are out of sight, out of mind. They're not covered you know, on uh, cable news. They're not covered in mainstream news. They're not covered in our newspapers or uh, other media. And uh, they're, they're in places like uh, Yemen and Somalia and Ethiopia and so forth. And so many people in this country aren't even aware that these wars are being fought. Often they're being fought in, in, in countries that have you know, little resources and, and major health problems to begin with, so that these wars are so, sort of a, uh, have sort of a multiplier effect in, in making the existing serious health problems and other problems uh, you know, much worse. So in that sense, the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine, where Russia has invaded Ukraine, is, is atypical compared to most wars that are going on in the world today. But it's, it's similar in a number of other respects. And one of the sad really horrendous uh, respects that it's similar is that in many of these recent wars fought in distant countries, most of which you know we don't hear about, civilians are targeted. And not only civilians, but civilian infrastructure, that is schools, food supply systems, water supply systems, uh, healthcare you know, clinics and hospitals, they're, they're specifically targeted. It's not, it's not just you know, people being in the wrong place at the wrong time, one side or the other, be it, uh, and these are civil wars, so you know, governments or rebel factions are actually targeting civilians. And it's, it's a strategy of war to, to uh, create a, um, you know, a feeling of terror and to try to make the other side you know, give up, basically. And so, so in that sense, the war in Ukraine is 
is typical of many other wars. And I think it's raising the awareness of people about war in general. You know, we 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 haven't had a, a war within our own country since the Civil War, and but so many other places in the world, in Africa and South Asia and Latin America, other parts of Europe and, and other parts of Asia have, have, have witnessed war on their own soil. So uh, this war in Ukraine is really, I think, opening people's eyes to the horrors of war. Sure. So as a physician, what concern you most about current wars and recent wars? Well, there are lots of things that concern me. I, I just, you know, going back to what I was just saying, the, one of the things that deeply concerns me is the fact that, I mean, that civilians are being targeted. I mean, it's bad enough that, you know, countries send off their military or, or within the country, the various military factions fight each other. And, and you know, it's not the leaders who are usually on the, on the front lines. It's, it's the youth. It's, it's often um, people who have minimal means to begin with who are sent off to fight. And, you know, the, the young people on one side are killing the young people on the other side who they personally don't have any grievance with, but the, either the factions within the country or, or the different governments in different countries, you know, have, have tensions that have erupted into war. So, so it's, it's not only the, the military who are injured and killed, of course, it's the civilians who, who are non-combatants and everything we know in, in civil society that, that supports our health and well-being. So food supply systems, uh, water treatment plants and su- uh, supply systems, shelter, clinics, hospitals, schools. And again, it's not by accident that these uh, places are targeted, are, are, are hit. They're, they're specifically targeted by uh, one side or the other. So that's what, what concerns me. And I guess related to that also is that often the international humanitarian law, and I'm talking basically about the Geneva Conventions, which state that civilians and civilian infrastructure should not be targeted and that prisoners of war should be respected and should not be harmed in any way. Those Geneva Conventions and other parts of international humanitarian law are being uh, routinely violated in many of these wars, including the war in Ukraine. I mean, just the other day we heard reports of uh, Russia murdering the prisoners of war. And that's, you know, if, if that turns out to be a true and documented, uh, that's that's clearly a war crime. You've spoken and you've written extensively on the health impacts of war. Now, some of those impacts are clearly obvious as when civilians are killed by bombs and bullets and landmines. What, what are some of the less obvious and indirect consequences of war on people's health? Well, what happens when the uh, there are attacks on hospitals, for example, is that people don't have medical care. And so it's not only the people who are killed and injured during those attacks, but the fact that that hospital may not be able to function or that clinic may not be able to function going forward. And so people are without medical care. And, you know, the things that we take for granted in this country, like there's there's always an emergency department to go by, you know, to to uh, to go to if you know we get seriously ill suddenly. There's doctors who are providing and others who are providing ongoing care, who are writing prescriptions, who are, you know, they're pharmacists fulfill, filling prescriptions, over-counter medications. When war comes, uh, these um, things that we take for granted are no longer present. So people, for example, with diabetes can't get their insulin or other medications. People with Heart disease may not get their their drugs, and so they they develop complications like congestive heart failure or diabetics may go into diabetic coma. People with asthma may have severe complications, and so that's one set of things that happen. Another set of things that happen is that when water treatment plants are destroyed or damaged, people cannot get safe water, and so they go to whatever sources of water there are. You know, we 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 can't go for three or more days uh, w- without without having any water. And so under those circumstances, people seek out whatever water is available. They may go to a river that they know to be contaminated, but nevertheless may be the only source of water. So people get sick. They develop cholera. They develop other gastrointestinal diseases that give them diarrhea and uh, sometimes cause death. In war, people are crowded together in uh, refugee camps, uh, we've seen people crowded together in subway stations uh, in Ukraine trying to avoid the, the bombing that's going on. As people are crowded together, they're more likely to spread respiratory diseases like COVID or tuberculosis. And so that's another 
you could say, indirect effect of war that's, that's not as obvious. A couple of other things. One is that as the food supply is um, threatened, people have less food to eat, and particularly young children and pregnant women are particularly uh, prone to severe effects of, of malnutrition. So that's you know, another thing that people may not fully realize, you know, you turn on cable news and you see the bombing of uh, and destruction, horrendous destruction going on in, in Ukraine, but you may not appreciate the fact that people are getting perhaps cholera or more COVID or malnutrition uh, as a result of these indirect effects. And another thing, of course, that is, is very uh, prominent in wars are mental health problems. People naturally, you know, as a result of the war, uh, develop depression post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. I mean, for many people, their whole lives are being destroyed. Many people are being uprooted during war, uh, displaced. And so there are not only immediate, but sometimes very long-term mental health problems. There's evidence that some of the people who were experiencing starvation during World War II continue to have effects on their mental health 40, 50, even 60 years later. So some of these problems really create scars on people's uh, physical and mental health for the rest of their lives. So warfare here in the 21st century, are there more civilians dying as a result of bombs and munitions or the diseases that is what causing the most deaths during war? Yeah. Well, it very it really varies from one war to another. If we go back to the early 1900s, we go back to, for example, World War One. The vast majority of deaths in that war, in most countries, were military. I mean, there were huge armies fighting each other. Some civilians, indeed, were killed, but the vast majority of uh, severe injuries and deaths were among military personnel. Uh, fast forward 100 years, and the situation is sort of flipped. Now, it's hard getting accurate data. You know, given the fog of war, given the fact that often each side tries to minimize the impact on their on their own populations, so it's often hard to get data. But it it seems that the vast majority in uh, of deaths and severe injuries and illnesses in most wars are now affecting civilians, non-combatant civilians, uh, rather than the military troops. And so, as I said earlier, I mean that's that's really a great concern of mine. Again, it's it's hard to quantitate exactly. But it, it appears that in most wars, the vast majority are of uh, deaths and injuries are uh, affecting civilians. There's one analysis done by a, an epidemiologist in, in London a few years ago, and he estimated that in each year, going back about three decades, there were about a million people who died uh, during war as a result of these indirect causes, as I mentioned before, infectious diseases, malnutrition, not enough medicine, and so forth. And then there's other data out there where people have been methodically counting deaths, uh, sort of body counts during war, and they've come up with a figure of something like 50,000 deaths a year. Now, the 50,000 deaths may be an underestimate, the million uh, indirect deaths may be an overestimate, but uh, if you if you look at these data, it, it, it just reinforces the fact that the uh, in most wars, the vast majority of deaths are as a result of these indirect causes and, and not so much from the bombs and the bullets. So we've all seen mainland news has brought us into our homes. The uh, mass immigration that results of war, what kind of health challenges do people who are displaced as a result of war, what kind of health challenges do they face? Well, they face some of the same problems I've been talking about already. That is, they they're, they're without their, you know, their medical care. They may not have reliable sources of food and water. They're also, you know, certainly if families have been split up, they're, they're without their support system. So, you know, the fathers might have been sent off to fight or they themselves, and fathers may have been executed by the, the other side in a war, as, as Russia has apparently done to young and middle-aged men and, and uh, you know, non-combatants in, in Ukraine. And so that's part of it. Another part of it, of course, is people are forced to, to often to other countries. So in the situation in Ukraine, there's been roughly 12 million people displaced, over over a quarter of the population, and uh, almost half of them are displaced to other countries where they may not know the language, they don't know the medical care system, they may be really vulnerable, particularly if they're women and children who are not, in a sense, being protected by uh, others in their family. They may be prone to uh, trafficking or gender-based violence, as specifically women may be raped or otherwise attacked in those vulnerable situations. 
And for the people within the country, uh, the so-called internally displaced uh, persons, those people are often worse off than the people who have somehow made it across a border to another country like Poland or Hungary. So uh, sometimes those people, and we've seen pictures of that from the war in Ukraine, they're you know, forced into the forest and they're scrounging for food. They're without water. They're without medical care. There may not be safe corridors for them to go from city to city. So they may be you know, attacked on the run. And we've seen uh, pictures of that from uh, Ukraine where families, largely women and children who are trying to escape, have, have been killed in, in, the, in the process. So refugees get to other countries and internally displaced persons face a, a very difficult uh, situation. And now, by the way, there's 100 million refugees in the world and, and internally displaced persons, uh, more than there has been in many, many years, probably going back to World War II. So, and it's not only the war in Ukraine that is displacing people, but many other wars around the world. Well, you, you mentioned the, uh, the number of deaths, the massive number of deaths of civilians uh, now already, but there is evidence, and I've heard this, that 80 to 90 percent of the deaths in current wars have been among civilians. Is that true? Yeah, well, so once again, it's, it's hard to get exact data on that, but I think the general trend is true that the vast majority of deaths have been amongst, among civilians in, in many wars. And, you know, I, I just want to take a moment and sort of paint a picture for you and your listeners of, of what it's like to, to be in a war zone and, and maybe ask you and your listeners to just close your eyes just for a moment and imagine what it would be like to live in a war zone or if you've already lived in a war zone uh, to try to recall what it was like. And, and just keep your eyes closed for a few moments. And I just want to sort of guide you through thinking of, of what that might be like. I mean, just, just sort of picture what it would be like in a war zone and, and, and uh, you know, close your eyes. And, and, and what do you see with your eyes closed? What, what do you imagine? A war zone would be like? Uh, what do you hear? If you were in a war zone, what are you afraid might happen? What will you do when the food runs out? Where will you go when the water stops running? How will you feel when the heat and power is shut off? How will you get help when the phone doesn't work and the internet is down? Uh, where will you go when your home is destroyed? Uh, what will you do when your family is attacked? And, and how will you all survive? I mean, these are, you know, often life and death questions that are faced by people in war zones. And, and again, in relation to your question, it's, it's the civilians who are facing these uh, unimaginable situations. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point, Dr. Levy, because those of us here in the United States, we just have not been attacked, uh, with the, maybe with the exception of Pearl Harbor. There's been no attack, military attack, against this country. So most people here have not experienced what a war zone is like unless they were in the military and sent to a foreign country to, to wage war. So I, I'm glad you pointed that out. You know, Dr. Levy, I'd like to know what you think about this. Some people refer to disasters, whether, you know, and, and weather disasters as looking like a war zone. How would you compare the experience that that civilians have as a result of weather devastation and, and that of war. Sure. And indeed, there, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, people are devastated. The things we've already talked about you know, get knocked out in a disaster often. Uh, uh, food supply, water supply, medical care, shelter. And you know, a big part of the response by the medical community and the international humanitarian community certainly if it's occurring in another country, is, is similar between a, a war zone and, and a disaster. What's different, of course, is that in a war zone, uh, the civilians uh, are continuing to be attacked. They're vulnerable, and there's they're, uh, until the war ends or until people might be able to escape to a safe location or to another country, it, it's an ongoing disaster. And so it's there are some similarities, but the big difference is that the uh, the people, the civilians, the non-combatants are, you know, ongoingly uh, at risk of being killed or made ill or uh, seriously injured. Yeah, yeah. So that does not happen here in the United States. So, and there is an argument here among uh, folks as to whether or not, because U.S. military 
I mean, we've been involved, U.S. military has been involved in 12 major wars, and so quite a few for a country this size. So there is an argument that, well, maybe what we need to do is bring back the draft so that civilians here have some skin in the game, I guess people would say, in yeah. terms of war, because what we know about war here is what we see on TV. And we don't have that personal experience of uh, the devastation that's caused by war. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, you're raising a complex subject then I, I don't want to give a, you know, a short answer that doesn't, you know, get into all the aspects of that. But, you know, certainly a case could be made to bring back the draft so that we all have skin in the game in a sense. And perhaps there would be you know, more questions asked before we, we enter a war. You know, the, one of the things I haven't yet talked about is, is the impact of war on military personnel. And of course, you know, our, our, our soldiers and our military who I have enormous respect for, you know, many of them come back with serious of physical injuries. Many of them come back with PTSD and depression and other mental health problems. And you know, we, we indirectly see the, the costs of war when we hear about and see how our own soldiers on coming back have suffered and are continuing to suffer. And you know, part of that also is, is that many military personnel, when they fight in a war and they come back home, they, they don't want to talk about it. They, they may not want to, you know, some of them do, but many of them don't want to talk about it or think about it anymore. And so we don't hear their stories about what they experienced and what they, they saw that might you know, raise the awareness of, of uh, the whole population about the horrendous impacts of war. So you have touched on this question as well. How have current and recent wars violated basic human rights and international humanitarian law? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I've covered some of that already. And, and just to summarize, you know, we talked about the fact that the Geneva Conventions uh, forbid military forces to either attack civilians and civilian infrastructure or to even, you know, send uh, indiscriminate weapons into civilian neighborhoods where civilians are likely to be injured and killed. So there's there's been, you know, apparent widespread violation of the Geneva Conventions in, in this war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine, and, and in many other uh, wars that are going on throughout the world. You know, on the other hand, many armies, including our own military, is trained intensively on how to respect those Geneva Conventions and other international humanitarian laws and to, uh, to the extent possible, avoid uh, situations where civilians may be killed or seriously injured. You know, one thing we, we, I haven't talked about very much, though, is in terms of violations of human rights and international humanitarian law is the attacks on women. And this is, uh, you know, it doesn't happen accidentally. Uh, it's not, you know, the military that uh, male soldiers who have, who have gone wild in, in the war. It's often a strategy of war to, to commit violence, uh, physical violence, sexual violence, and by that I mean rape on, on women. And that's a, a major violation that's occurring in many wars, including apparently uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. But Dr. Levy, it seems to me that war has a profound effect on the environment. Can you tell us and our listeners in, in what ways war harms the environment as well? Indeed. Uh, you, you know, um, there's often widespread and long-lasting impact of war on the environment and on ecosystems. You know, if, when there are explosions and fires like there is in the war in Ukraine, that, of course, contaminates the air with toxic gases and particulate matter that not only affects the military personnel, but the civilians to the extent that they may be nearby, and particularly those people who have underlying heart and lung disease. So that's one example. Another thing that happens with air contamination during war is that when fossil fuels are used extensively, as they are being in the war in Ukraine, those fossil fuels create you know, greenhouse gases, and those emissions are the, the main reason we're having global warming and climate change. So air contamination is, is one uh, aspect. Another aspect is water and soil contamination. You know, when there's a destruction of a, a factory or an industrial area, and of course, much of Ukraine, particularly the eastern and southern portion of Ukraine, is highly industrialized. So when factories are destroyed, like that steel mill was in Mariupol, it creates a situation where chemicals are leaking into the environment in the water and soil. And you know, with this shelling now in and around um, nuclear reactors, there's a concern that there could be widespread uh, radioactive contamination of the environment uh, like there is around 
uh, Chernobyl, where it was a meltdown uh, back in 1986. One of the other things that affects the environment is the fact that uh, landmines have been widely dis deployed in the war in Ukraine and in many other wars, although there's less deployment of landmines now that there's an international treaty that forbids that. But in Ukraine, there are many places where Russian forces have deployed landmines, making it impossible for people to enter those areas, impossible for people to return to their homes, for farmers to enter their fields, for, for children to go out and play. And then similarly, there's many shells that have not exploded. These are duds that haven't exploded, but if somebody approaches them and touches them, for example, those shells may indeed explode. So that's another uh, issue with regard to the environment. You know, another thing that happens with war, and you could say even the preparation for war, is that it diverts resources to the military that might otherwise go toward education, health, and the protection of the environment. So when, when a country is at war, they're, they're spending less resources, you know, financial resources, uh, fewer human resources that are attending to you know, protecting the environment and, and uh, animal habitats and so forth. So there are lots of ways in which um, war affects the environment. I guess there's some other ways uh, as well. I mean, before and after, like pit burns, where they're destroying the, the waste products and, and, of course, even poisonous gas that, that's used. I suppose that, that has... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought the burn pits because many, uh, particularly American military personnel, but I suspect personnel from other countries as well, you know, have been burning just everything in these so-called burn pits and have suffered uh, respiratory and other health problems as a result. Does that have any impact on uh, climate change? I mean, does climate change increase the risk of war or is there other forms of conflict? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting that uh, these you know, emissions of fossil fuels during war increases climate change, but also climate change itself may increase the risk of not only war, but also domestic violence and community violence. And um, this is a very difficult thing to study from a, from a scientific point of view, because these are observational studies. But there's more and more evidence that suggests that climate change is at least a contributing factor to, to war. You know, the, the war in Syria is an example, and that, that war would have occurred whether or not there was climate change. But one of the things that happened early on uh, before that, that war started in 2011 in Syria is that there was a huge drought for about four years. And a lot of people, a lot of farmers and their families were displaced uh, from, from the fields that were turned into desert, basically, to the, to the cities. And so basically a million more people were in the cities which put a lot more burden on the government, but also created further instability in many ways. And that was a, at least a contributing factor to the start of the war. The war would have happened anyway, but uh, certainly the instability caused by climate change and, and the drought uh, probably was a, an important contributing factor. So, so you have loss of resources as well as migration as, as a, as a, temptation to invade, to, to get those resources for another country? Is that, that would be a part of it as well, right? Well, yeah, yeah. So actually a number of wars have been fought, so-called resource wars, where one country has actually invaded another country um, because that country has rich mineral. So there may be minerals that are vital to uh, the microelectronics, you know, to, to, to your cell phone and mine and our, our computers and so forth. These are, you know, rare earth minerals that are present only in certain countries. And so some of those countries actually have been invaded uh, and wars have been fought over the control of those, um, those precious resources. Sometimes war like have indirect and direct unexpected consequences. What are some of those indirect consequences, Dr. Yeah. Well, just a couple of them briefly. One is, as, as um, has been reported quite a bit, is that uh, be because of the war in Ukraine, that has affected both the growing of crops and and ukraine accounts for a huge percentage of the of the wheat and corn that's grown in the world and so a lot of the crop is not coming to market because of of the um of the war but also a lot of the crop uh, that has gotten that is grains for example that has actually gotten to ports like odessa on the black sea has not been able to be shipped out because the Rus russians have been blocking ports at least up until now and there seems to be a, at least a temporary uh, resolution of this crisis. 
but if it were to continue, Ukraine would not be able to ship grain to many other parts of the world that depend on that grain to feed their populations. So that's going to cause famine in other countries. So that's that's one example of an unexpected uh, and indirect consequence. So that could actually cause additional conflict or wars in other countries just to gain resources that they don't have. Yeah, absolutely. Ukraine, Ukraine war. Absolutely. When there's not not enough food, prices of food go up, food riots occur, you know, fighting occurs, fighting over the food and so forth. So absolutely. You know, one, one consequence of war is that it leads to other wars. Yeah. Well, Oxford University Press now recently published your book entitled From Horror to Hope, Recognizing and Preventing the Health Impacts of War. Why did you choose to write this book? Well, I, I've been uh, writing articles and uh, with others, editing books, developing books, and having multiple experts contribute to books for a long time. Most of those books have been mainly for the medical community doctors, nurses, public health workers. And I wanted to write a book that um, would, would build on that experience and that knowledge I had gained, but to, to write it for a broader audience. And so that was the main reason why I, I, I wrote this book, to, to try to reach out to not only inform people about war and the adverse effects of war, but really to engage them in thinking about these issues and to assist in some way, either directly or indirectly. I mean, for example, there are many refugees in this country, not, not only some from the war in Ukraine, but from a number of other wars. And so there, there are concrete things that people can do to address some of the, the uh, circumstances of war, the consequences of war. That is, for example, helping re- refugees resettle in this country. We certainly can give money or other means of support to uh, humanitarian assistance organizations that are going over to and working in places like uh, not only Ukraine, but Syria and other countries at war. Uh, that are providing food and water and medical care to the to the victims of those wars. So I think there's a lot of things that people can do, and I tried to highlight that in my book, not only in general, but I've, in the book I've in, included uh, some profiles of people who have changed their lives in some ways to address the circumstances of war. An anesthesiologist who took who set up her life so she could take four months off every year and go over work, uh, work overseas with Doctors Without Borders in war zones to help the victims of war. A, um, a doctor in the Congo in Central Africa who was treating, an obstetrician gynecologist who was treating many women who are victims of rape, who has gone on to be, become a worldwide advocate uh, for women and for the prevention of, of uh, gender-based violence, for the prevention of, of rape and war. There's a, a man who worked for many years dealing with the uh, treating people who were injured by landmines in Cambodia. And uh, he went on to help develop the, um, a study that led to the landmine treaty that now, uh, I think over 160 countries have now signed on to, in which they've agreed uh, to not produce or store or deploy landmines. So I highlight in the book some people who give, I think all of us reason for hope that you know, war is not an insurmountable problem and that uh, not only uh, can we reduce the impacts of war, but hopefully, as, as you said at the start of this uh, discussion, that uh, perhaps we can envision a day when there's you know, no war at all, when there's a world without war. There's that additional indirect effect of changing the lives of people who are not even involved in that particular war. They change their whole lives or they go and help people who are in, in that war. Plus, uh, resources that could have been used for something else. Of course, that's another indirect, perhaps. Yes, yes. And, you know, my, my book is not encouraging everybody to go off to some war zone and, and help out with uh, humanitarian assistance there. Each of us, I think, has certain skills, certain knowledge, certain, you know, uh, uh, personal and professional relationships where there's all, if you look hard enough, I think there are ways that each of us can contribute to, to reducing violence and, and promoting peace, in, in starting with our own uh, neighborhoods and our own communities, and, and uh, you know, developing a mindset that you know, when there's d- disputes and conflicts, they often can be settled without violence. We can, we can come to some resolution that uh, doesn't involve violence, uh, be it uh, community violence or, or a war. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about mainly the horrors of war now. What what do you see for hope? Do you see any hope for, for civilians? 
Well, you know, I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't see hope. I, I uh, And I wouldn't have devoted so much of my uh, career to addressing these issues if I didn't see hope. You know, I come from a background in, in not only internal medicine, but also in public health. And uh, public health looks at issues from a, a prevention point of view and, and to try to see, you know, where are the opportunities where you can uh, prevent violence uh, from occurring. But I, I, I see at least three broad reasons for hope. One is that already many disputes at the local, national, international level are being resolved without violence. For example, there are over 250 river systems in the world, 250 rivers in the world, that are shared by two or more countries. And while there are many disputes around those shared rivers in terms of who's going to get how much water and so forth, and many threats of violence, the vast majority of those disputes have been settled without violence. So that's an example of one of the reasons why I have hope, that is disputes resolved without violence. Another is that some of the basic risk factors for war are being addressed in a way that I think over time will reduce the risk of, of war and other forms of violence. I'm talking about the reduction in extreme poverty. I'm talking about uh, improvement of governance within countries. I'm talking about efforts to reduce animosity between groups. I mean, we're trying to reduce uh, ethnic and religious and racial tensions that occur in, in many countries. So I, I, have, you know, I have reason for hope because some of these underlying risk factors for war and violence are being uh, reduced. And, th and the third reason, and again, as I, I just mentioned and I've highlighted in my book, the people who are getting engaged in one way or another to address war and its adverse circumstances. You know, one thing I haven't talked about yet are, are teachers. Uh, some of my colleagues who are uh, teachers in faculty members in medical schools or schools of public health are now introducing courses on war where there weren't courses before. You, you would think with war being such a big medical and public health problem that all medical schools and, and nursing schools and schools of public health would have basic courses on the subject. And in fact, they don't. But some of my colleagues, and this is not, again, another reason for hope, are, are introducing those courses because they think it's vital that doctors and nurses and public health workers see war as a public health problem. Uh, and, and by the way, not only is work you know, some distant public health problem, it, it's a public health problem to the extent that there are people living in our communities. Uh, some of them are refugees. Some, some are people uh, in other circumstances who have experienced war in their past and are still suffering the effects of the war. Uh, there are military uh, personnel who have returned home uh, bearing so many of the physical and, and mental scars of war. So it, it's a public health problem in this country as, as well as globally. And so, again, the reasons I have hope are the disputes being resolved without violence, the reduction in the risk factors for war, and so many examples of individual people looking to see what they can do in one way or another to try to reduce violence and, 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 and to promote peace. So, Dr. Levy, the Harvard psychologist, Steven Pinker, in his book, Better Angels of Our Nature, his conclusion was, based on a lot of math conducted by Lewis Richardson as well, is that actually, if you measure the, the numbers of humans that are dying as the result of violence created by other humans, per 100,000, we are actually, throughout the 20th century, 21st century as well so far, we are actually experiencing less people being killed by other humans than we have in previous centuries. So the fact that, yeah, and it looks so different when we're looking at TV and the war is brought into our living room. It looks like, uh, you know, uh, the whole world's on fire. But if you look at the statistics created by Steven Pinker, others as well, actually the numbers of people that are dying as a result of human violence has decreased somewhat. So do you see those statistics as a reason to hope here? Yeah, I, I, I think that is hopeful in some respects. The you know, Some of the limitations of those data are that, as I said earlier, it's hard to quantitate how many people have died during war because some of these effects are indirect effects and probably most of the, the deaths of civilians in war are as a result of these indirect effects, less health care, less safe food, less safe water, and so forth. But there is evidence, you know, it's, it's a, a glass that's half full and half empty. I think Steven Pinker has a, a point to be made. 
If you look at some other data, though, it's it's more distressing. The there are institutions in Scandinavia, including a place called CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, that dispassionately and as objectively as possible tries to measure a number of things having to do with war, including how many wars there are at any given time. And if you count as they do, uh, and using strict definitions of war and, and armed conflict, if, if you if you look at their data, the actual number of wars being fought in the world is in the range of 40 now, which is more than have been in you know going back several decades. So I admire Steven Pinker. I think he has a, a lot of useful uh, things to say, but I, I think the data on on war and the numbers of people dying is a little bit less certain. Uh, there may indeed be a, a trend overall for fewer people dying now as a result of war and other forms of violence. But I, I think there are other data to say that, well, I'm not so sure about that. And there are a lot more armed conflicts going on in the world than we've had before. But as people listen to your presentation here today, that presentation brings home the fact the devastation caused by war and the fact that, that there is a diminished number of people dying as a result of violence. That does give us reason to hope, don't you think? I think certainly there's an, uh, there is reason to hope. And, and I, I, as I said, I think there's a certain amount of validity to those statistics. There are other statistics that you know, point in the other direction. And you know, how much war is too much? How many, how many civilians dying, you know, if indeed it's a million a year and, and, and uh, continues in that range, is that acceptable? Particularly since many of these civilians, well, these civilians are non-combatants. Uh, many of them are women and children. And and uh, if we look only on mortality, as I said today, that's only one measure of the impact of war. But uh, yeah, I appreciate very much your bringing that up. Okay. So once again, how how can the health impacts be minimized from war? Well, again, I, I don't want to I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be overly simplistic and say, but I, I say this, but I, I think there are three things that can be done basically to minimize the impacts. One is providing medical care and humanitarian relief to uh, the victims of war. And, and that's uh, on, not only during the war itself, but in the aftermath of war, enabling people, to, uh, you know, rehabilitating nations, reintegrating people after the war, uh, trying to build stable societies societies where people have a say in the in the government decisions that affect their lives. So I, I think an important part of it is providing care for people during war, providing care for people at, after war ends. And then the third part is um, providing protection of civilians and civilian infrastructure during war and, and making it, you know, um, just truly unacceptable for civilians to be targeted and for civilian infrastructure to be targeted during war. So I uh, think you kind of answered this question, Dr. Levy. What roles can doctors, nurses, and public health professionals play in helping to reduce the health impacts of war? Well, to summarize, they can provide direct care for victims. They can document the uh, horrors of war. Uh, part of that, in fact, to, to uh, document information that might be relevant for uh, for um, prosecution of war crimes, they can raise awareness and uh, educate the public and, and other health professionals about the impact of war and what can be done to minimize that. And, and uh, physicians and nurses and other uh, health people can advocate uh, for government policies and, and global policies that try to minimize the, um, the occurrence of war. Okay, in, in the final few minutes that we have, Dr. Levy, once a war has ended, what can be done to ensure a lasting peace? Well, just building on, on what I said a moment ago, uh, is, is rehabilitating nations, reintegrating people, uh, trying to restore a degree of normalcy, protecting human rights and, and, uh, and uh, the rule of law, and supporting post-conflict reconciliation. That is, you know, some, some countries have had so-called truth commissions. There was one in, in um, South Africa after apartheid, but after some other, after some civil wars, uh, the government has set up, often with international support, so-called truth commissions where people can tell the truth and, and admit what they did during the course of war as, as a way of 
moving beyond the war and and to um, you know move to um, you know get beyond the grievances that that uh, might otherwise uh, continue the grudges and grievances that might otherwise continue. So uh, there's a lot that can be done to uh, build sustainable peace. And as I said earlier, supporting the rule of law and also supporting a democratic or other similar forms of government where people have a say in the decisions that affect their lives. Well, we want to thank you again. It's been a fascinating perspective on war that uh, that you've given us. Uh, are there are there any other points that you'd like to make before we uh, before we end? Yes, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be w- with you and your listeners. The one last thing I would say, and I haven't mentioned up to this point, is the ongoing threat of nuclear weapons. There are 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Some of them are on hair trigger release. Uh, Russia and the United States possess 90% of them. We really need to work towards reducing the number and ultimately eliminating all nuclear weapons. They are uh, more dangerous uh, to us, even those countries like Russia and the United States that possess these weapons, than would be the case if we had a world without nuclear weapons. So I I, I just wanted to mention that that's an important um, issue that looms over all discussion about war. Well, thank you again for joining us at uh, Solutions to Violence. Our conversation today has been with physician, epidemiologist, and author of his new book, From Horrors to Hope, Recognizing and Preventing the Health Impacts of War. We appreciate you joining us as we explore more solutions to violence. Thank you once again for sharing your time and experience with our listeners here on Forward Radio. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions to Violence program features Dr. Barry Levy will air again August 30th and 31st. This program featuring Dr. Levy will be placed in our archives August 31st, 2022. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to Solutions About's program that features Barry Levy. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Dr. Levy, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsabouts18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson with co-host Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Wishing you and yours wellness, safety, and peace in these challenging COVID pandemic times. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.